0: It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. I am well aware that much of the country views Washington as a clown show, a place where people are embroiled in petty feuds, can't get along it's like an elementary school. They're throwing spitballs at each other, um, getting into fistfights and so forth. And the events of the last couple of days basically show that to be true. It's not metaphorical. It's real. And it's kind of unbelievable, humiliating, embarrassing at a time when the country is facing so many problems that elected representatives and others would stoop to this kind of lowly behavior. So story number one. We'll start with the first one. This is a Republican senator from Oklahoma. His name is Mark Wayne Mullen. He's at a hearing, Health, Education, and Labor Committee, and he read a tweet from the Teamsters president, Sean O'Brien. So the Teamsters leader had really slammed Senator Mullen, saying, Sir, I wish you was in the truck with me When I was building my plumbing company, myself and my wife was running the office because I should remember working pretty hard in long hours. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been, always will be. Seems to be quoting something from the senator. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. And... Mullen had responded, again, this is all before the hearing, an attention-seeking Union Teamsters boss is trying to be punchy after our Senate hearing. Okay, I accept your challenge. MMA fight for charity of our choice. September 30th in Tulsa. I'll give you three days to accept. All right, so that's the backstory. story. Now they're at the hearing, and Mullen says, Sir, this is the time, this is the place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, fine. Perfect, says O'Brien. Mullen, you want to do it right now? I'd love to do it right now, says O'Brien. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up, O'Brien says. So they both stand up. Markway Mullen moves to take his ring off his finger. And it looks like there is going to be a fistfight in the Senate committee room. So Bernie Sanders, the committee chairman, says, hold it, stop it. O'Brien, is that your solution to every problem? Sanders, stop it. No, no, sit down, sit down. You're a United States senator. And they both sat down and there was no boxing match as a way of settling their differences. That's not all. Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Republican, says that Kevin McCarthy shoved him while his back was turned. Uh, Burchett was one of the Republicans who supported pushing McCarthy out of the Speaker's chair. So no love lost there. And according to him and an NPR reporter, McCarthy struck at him, which led to an intense encounter. So after this alleged shove, uh, Burchard told CNN that the NPR account was very accurate, that he was elbowed in the back, which he described as a clean shot at the kidneys I turned back and there was Kevin. For a minute, I was kind of, what the heck just happened? I chased after him. As I have stated many times, he's a bully with $17 million in a security detail. He is the type of guy who, when you were a kid, he would throw the rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt. <laughs> Can you believe this stuff, folks? That is not the way we handle things in East Tennessee. We have a problem with somebody. I'm going to look them in the eye and talk to them. Burchett said things got a little heated. So McCarthy is denying this accusation. Just kind of brushed it off. More from Congressman Burchett. I raised my voice to him. I thought it was appropriate. You don't expect a guy who at one time was three steps away from the White House to hit you with a sucker punch in the hallway. He said it still hurts but also suggested he wasn't going to waste time filing any kind of ethics complaint against McCarthy. Okay, we're not done. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she had submitted a motion to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas. It got voted down by the House. One of the people she's unhappy with is Congressman Daryl Issa. So she quoted a tweet about Issa with a one second clip from Donald Trump saying she said he's a pussy. Now, this is a completely unrelated comment by Trump that MTG used. It actually goes back to 2016. Um, Trump was holding a a rally a campaign rally and he repeated a comment from a woman in the crowd saying uh, that Ted Cruz then a competitor for the Republican nomination was a pussy. That's still not done. There's something in the water here. I mean this is just out of control. Congressman James Comer the uh, oversight chairman who is pursuing an impeachment inquiry against President Biden, told another congressman, Jarrett Moskowitz from Florida, you look like a smurf. Now, Laura Ingraham was talking about all this on her show. By the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a few days ago, had also called Congresswoman Lauren Boebert a whore. This having to do with the incident in the movie theater in Denver where she was making out with her then boyfriend. Laura Ingram last night. I never thought I'd say this, but Bernie Sanders seems to be the voice of reason here, in that near altercation in the Senate committee room. Everything you just saw as she played the clip was a complete and utter embarrassment. It shouldn't be was projected to our kids from our nation's capital. Reminded to you all, yeah, the children are watching. You're supposed to be the adults in the room. Uh, Not so much. All right, let's move on to story number two. The House yesterday, this is from The Hill newspaper, followed through on what new speaker Mike Johnson wanted to do, passed a short-term stopgap bill to prevent, wait for it, a government shutdown. The government would have shut down Friday had Congress not done something. But this is only one House, keep in mind. So, short-term funding measure passes by 336 votes to 95. With all but two Democrats supporting the measure, the Dems don't want a government shutdown, 93 Republicans opposing the bill. So really, the Democrats bailed out the GOP with conservatives opposed to the spending levels in the bill. Republican leaders it makes the obvious point leaned heavily on support from Democrats. There is a two part approach to this. One part would extend uh, funding at the current level for some at the current levels for some agencies and programs until January nineteenth all the others through. February 2nd. Now the legislation's gone to the Senate. Chuck Schumer said he will try to pass it quickly as Congress tries to avoid a shutdown before next week's Thanksgiving holiday. An early legislative achievement for Mike Johnson. He's been Speaker for less than a month. But here's the catch. Mike Johnson, being given some breathing room by his fellow conservatives, just did exactly what Kevin McCarthy did that got him ousted from the Speaker's chair. Unable to put together any kind of compromise permanent bill, McCarthy needed Democratic help to kick the can down the road and avoid the last threatened government shutdown. I mean, this is deja vu all over again. We just go through this again and again and again. But because the hard right members of the GOP caucus didn't want to blow up Johnson's uh, speakership so soon after he took office, after all that time spent on trying to find a new speaker, you recall they couldn't get uh, Jim Jordan through, they couldn't get Tom Emmer through. So they rolled over for this. But, you know, this endless melodrama isn't over yet. They've got five more appropriations bills to pass. They've run into trouble on the floor. And the other thing about this stopgap measure is no military aid for Israel. Now, Mike Johnson would say, hey, we already passed an Israel bill, but they passed it in such a form not including Ukraine, that the Democratic Senate won't even take it up. So as the war continues, and we'll get into that later, no help from the Congress. Johnson says he wants to tackle Ukraine funding next, but that's become a very hot-button issue among plenty of Republicans. Johnson telling reporters, I've been drinking from Niagara Falls for the last three weeks. This will allow everybody to go home for a couple of days for Thanksgiving. Everybody cool off. This place is a pressure cooker. A pressure cooker that's apparently driving people wild and leading to potential fistfights, an alleged elbow in the back, and all kinds of name-calling. So, Johnson actually kind of broke with what the Hill calls his right flank, by not including any conservative policy writers or spending cuts, because that would have slowed it up, Dems would have objected, and probably not avoided the Friday deadline, and it would have been, at least for some period of days, a government shutdown. The Democrats weren't particularly happy with Johnson's proposal, the two-step approach. They denounced the absence of funding for Israel and Ukraine. And look, it's a Band-Aid. It's a temporary fix. It just means we'll have to have this fight all over again in January and February. And you wonder why people are fed up, disgusted, appalled by what's going on in the nation's capital. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number three. I mentioned, I believe, yesterday that Trump, in a Veterans Day message, used the word "vermin" to describe his opponents, as well as fascist, communist thugs. Uh, mentioning Laura Ingraham on Fox on her show, she said that that comment has sent the media into complete meltdown. Mehdi Hassan, MSNBC. This isn't the first time Trump has been caught echoing the rhetoric of Nazis and white supremacists. Nicole Wallace, MSNBC. An ignorant person when warned that Hitler used to call, which the government would stop, would stop from turning up the volume. Joe Scarborough, MSNBC. And now we're going just full-on Hitler, talking about... Vermin. And then Laura says, uh, citing a source, CNN and MSNBC have likened Trump to Hitler only 12 times so far today. On uh, Morning Joe, here's Mike Barnacle talking about President Biden, defending President Biden, who, as you know, uh, is struggling in the polls. And in a couple of recent polls, including New York Times, trailing Donald Trump a year out in those swing states that will decide the election. Barnacle, he has every hour, of every day, something comes across his desk. None of us can comprehend the weight of the presidency. And as as he would tell you if he were here today, it's amazing how every country in the world looks to the United States for help, for solutions, for just about anything you can think of. You read every newspaper in the country, about President Biden, within the first two paragraphs, they'll point out that he's in his 80s. No kidding. He knows how old he is. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Someone 45 years of age couldn't do what he does every day. Scarborough. Um, He says he talked to so many diplomats and world leaders over the last two, three years, who all say that the guy has a feel, a grasp for geopolitics, strategies, all the angles. And he gets it. It's relevant because today in San Francisco, the president is meeting with Xi Jinping of China. And I think it's the first time they've met in a year. And I think there's low expectations. There's no big agreement on the table. But it's just an attempt to keep communication open. Uh, And I'm sure we'll bring the president plenty of criticism. However, you know, every American president has met with China's leader. There's a lot of tension right now between the two countries. And to the extent that talking is a good thing, even between two countries that are clearly very sharp adversaries, I I think it's hard to criticize. Now, here's a couple of other uh, related things. Um, Former CNN White House correspondent John Harwood reacting to uh, bad news for Biden by arguing the press has a responsibility to do a better job of touting his successes. Quote, on Twitter, Biden needs expert political guidance. Voters are unhappy. Trump could win despite his flagrant criminality and deranged mental state. Journalists need to better convey that the U.S. economy is doing well and that Biden at 80 is handling his job effectively. You know, as a commentator, he can say whatever he wants. But as CNN's White House correspondent, that's why Chris Lick, when he was running CNN, let him go. He was so obviously biased against Trump and in favor of President Biden. CNN last night, Caitlin Collins show. She, she opened up with a blistering summary of Trump's comments that repeatedly referenced Hitler. And she said the campaign was doubling down. And she noted this is this not some off-the-cuff uh, remark or remarks by Trump, including Vermin, that the latest attack was on the teleprompter. Now, let me go from that to today's New York Times story that basically is a rewrite of Sunday's front-page New York Times story about warning about the dangers of a second Trump term. Now, I have a column today contrasting what a Politico columnist had to say about Joe Biden. He's in deep trouble, and here's what he needs to do. He should get Rahm Emanuel to come back and run the campaign. He should have turn over the Middle East to Bill and Hillary Clinton. should stop talking about Bidenomics you know, an effort to provide advice to salvage the campaign. Perfectly good opinion piece. But contrast that with all of these stories, as I talked about yesterday and the day before, I think, saying here's all the horrible, terrible, no good, very bad things that Donald Trump will do if he wins a second term. So again today, New York Times, Former President Trump declared in the first rally of his 2024 campaign, I am your retribution. He vowed to use the Justice Department to go after his political adversaries, starting with President Biden and his family, meaning Hunter, and maybe others. Beneath these public threats is a series of plans by Trump and his allies that would upend core elements of American governance, democracy, foreign policy, and the rule of law if he regained the White House. Um, this is what Trump has been talking about on the trail, what's been on his website, interviews with Trump advisors. He said he would use the Justice Department to have his adversaries investigated and charged with crimes and get a real special prosecutor to go after Joe Biden. He confirmed this in an interview with Univision. Trump's allies have also developing what's called here an intellectual blueprint to cast aside the post-Watergate norm of DOJ investigations. He already violated those norms in 2016 by promising to lock up Hillary Clinton over her use of a private email server. As president, he told AIDS he wanted the Justice Department to indict officials such as The man he fired, James Comey, former head of the FBI. The Justice Department opened various investigations but did not bring charges, and that led to a split between Trump and his his second attorney general, Bill Barr. Trump planning an assault on immigration on a scale unseen in modern American history. Millions of undocumented immigrants would be barred from the country or uprooted from it years or even decades after settling here, and he talked about Trump's idea of using the US military to attack drug cartels in Mexico, an idea that would violate international law unless Mexico consented. So it goes on and on and on. Now, this is all fair game to talk about this, but the contrast between warning that, that Donald Trump would be extremely dangerous to democracy if he regains a second term versus Offering advice to the Biden campaign is just so striking to me. A couple of related things. uh, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis in Georgia has asked for an emergency protective order to prevent the leak of potential evidence this after uh, in the trial against Trump and many other defendants. ABC got a hold of videos from former Trump lawyers who have already pleaded guilty. Uh, The first one played was Jenna Ellis quoting a top Trump official at the end of the presidency saying Trump's just going to stay here. We're not leaving. We don't care what other people say, despite losing the election. Also now they've got uh, ABC's video from Sidney Powell discussing details. And Fannie Willis worried about witness intimidation and obstruction of justice. But I guess you could also say, why isn't she running a tighter ship? Going back to the speaker, Mike Johnson, in a CNBC interview yesterday, confronted by host Joe Kernan about Donald Trump's continuing argument that the 2020 election was stolen. I take him his word, Mike Johnson says. I do believe that he believes that. Remember, I was one of his lawyers. I worked on the impeachment defense team twice to defend his positions, and I know how he thinks. And he's convinced that because of all the irregularities and everything else, he was still entitled to that. But Andrew Ross Sorkin on CNBC said this is inaccurate. It's like saying it's sunny outside, but it's raining. So the speaker said this. Look, there are a lot of people in Washington who are saying things that are not accurate all the time. Everybody does. We're all human. But I'll say this about President Trump. He believes that in his heart, deep in his heart. I mean, I've talked to him personally about it. Many of us have. And over the years, you've heard him say repeatedly, over and over, the same refrain, that he just felt like he was cheated in that election. And that's a core conviction of his, and we should take him at his word on that. He believes it. That's the Speaker's position. It's not supported by evidence, so it's never been proven in court or even by the ju- a Justice Department investigation. But that's how the speaker tried to slide by on this. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, little sip of water and we get to story number four from The Atlantic. Is Biden toast? Same thing that everyone's been arguing about, but a couple of interesting observations in this piece saying the voters' biggest economic preoccupation is not jobs. You know, Biden on the trail, understandably, keeps stressing, and in the White House, keeps stressing, uh, how many millions of jobs have been created since he became president. You know, many of them regained from the pandemic. Um, the rate of inflation has come down, as I mentioned yesterday, but costs have not. Polling by a Democratic firm found a huge disconnect between what voters believe Biden is focused on, jobs, and what they care about most, inflation. That's why Bidenomics is not resonating. So, the Democrats that this Atlantic reporter spoke to say that the election will be close, but they felt that Trump's weakness as a general election nominee, if that happens, will hurt him ultimately, and he might be running as a convicted felon. And while New York Times poll found that an unnamed generic Democrat, which in my view is useless, would fare much better against Trump than Biden, they also found a generic Republican would trounce Biden by an even larger margin. But none of the Democrats uh, that Atlantic interviewed was pining for another nominee or wanted Biden to drop out. There are plenty of them out there. He just didn't talk to any. Uh, Congressman Dean Phillips, who is challenging Biden, hasn't secured a single noteworthy endorsement. Uh, Kamala Harris is no more popular among voters. And all the Democrats uh, consulted for this piece expressed doubts about the candidacy of a relatively untested governor, say Gavin Newsom of California, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania, would make a Democratic victory more likely. Former Obama campaign manager Jim Messina said, if Biden dropped out, a flood of ambitious Democrats would immediately enter the race and a free-for-all primary could produce an even weaker nominee. Fair observation. What would happen? Others downplay Biden's poor polling. But Biden's age, 86 at the end of a second term, is a fact of life, says the Atlantic. Number five. Let's go to the word. There was this massive demonstration here in Washington yesterday on the National Mall, at least tens of thousands, filled up the entire mall, and there was overflow as well. What was called the March for Israel, people from all over the country came, Um, the biggest one since the Mideast War began, coming after many large pro-Palestinian, pro-Gaza, pro-Hamas demonstrations across the U.S. and around the world. Uh, The Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, addressed the huge crowd over a video feed. There is no greater and more just cause than this. Today we come together as a family, one big mishpaka, the Hebrew word, to march for Israel. Uh, The head of the Jewish Federations of North America, saying at the rally that Americans overwhelmingly support Israel. But we were hearing, increasingly hearing from imposing voices who are on the fringe, but who are very loud. I'm not so sure they're on the fringe, based on what I hear about from college campuses and these other demonstrations. People came from L.A., Houston, Boston, Philly, and other places uh, yesterday. Mike Johnson addressed the crowd. Chuck Schumer, who's Jewish, addressed the crowd. Richie Torres, a Democratic congressman from the Bronx. Warned that the narrative has shifted, has shifted against Israel. But he said a ceasefire with uh, Hamas should be off the table. That would be like saying America uh, should have entered a ceasefire with Japan after the attacks on Pearl Harbor. Now, about the situation at Gaza's largest hospital. Israeli troops entered the hospital today. And Israel, backed up by U.S. intelligence, says that this hospital, Al-Shifa, is used, and will await further proof, uh, as a base for Hamas's command and control centers. Whether there are tunnels under this, this hospital or not, at this moment, remains to be seen. But the Israeli government has released video of... Uh, Another hospital, a children's hospital, where, in fact, there were tunnels underneath that hospital. This is what Hamas does. It embeds itself and its ability to attack Israel in places that you would think Israel would be reluctant to attack, like a hospital, and most people around the world, not knowing the details, say hospital, this is outrageous. I mean, Israel is really losing the, the PR war on this because of this uh, attack on Gaza's largest hospital, where there have been some deaths. But ultimately it's Hamas that is making the Palestinian people vulnerable by embedding where civilians live, not just hospitals, but children's schools and elsewhere. Now this came up on Fox yesterday when White House spokesman John Kirby says, the U.S. has confirmed that Hamas has used hospitals as both command centers and to hold hostages. Including the Al-Shifa hospital, says Kirby, and tunnels underneath them. By the way, BBC News apologizing today for reporting about Israel's siege around this Al-Shifa hospital by having claimed that medical teams and Arab speakers were being targeted. Well, BBC says it misquoted a Reuters report. So somebody else did the reporting, another news organization, and the BBC can't get it straight. The BBC said we apologize for this error that fell below our editorial standards. And as I did yesterday, I'm going to throw in a story six because there's just so much to deal with here. It's important that we don't forget this. The man who was on trial for that horrible attack on Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, in his home, their home, San Francisco, she was not there. He broke in. He, there was a lot of misinformation about this or speculation. And looking at the testimony, it seems to me that this evil individual, David DePae, has basically confessed He told the jury he planned to dress up in a unicorn costume and record a video of Nancy Pelosi, who he was going to attack. You know, remember he had the hammer and zip ties and so forth. As he interrogated her about what he viewed as her false statements about Trump and Russia. If she lied, this is what the prosecution has alleged. This is the story that Paul Pelosi told Very emotional for him to have to relive that. I mean, he was rushed to the hospital with a skull fracture and could well have died. To Pape testifying, on the stand, I was going to break her kneecaps. Now, he denied that the prosecutor's allegation that this assault, which was back last October, a year ago October, and attempted kidnapping of Paul Pelosi, was connected to Nancy Pelosi's job in Congress. Yet, he just happened to pick the home of Paul Pelosi in San Francisco, despite his obvious and admitted animosity toward the then Speaker of the House. But on cross-examination, the paper acknowledging he knew that Congresswoman Pelosi worked in Washington. He had called her the leader of the pack. He had insisted that she lied about corruption there. He also admitted, telling police after the assault, that if he had broken Pelosi's kneecaps, every other member of Congress would see her wheeled into the house in a chair and realize there was a consequence for being, quote, the most evil people on the planet. Well, that's a category in which uh, I would put this assailant and defend it. And everything I've just read to you seems to me you know, you don't need a Perry Mason moment. He gets on the stand and he says, All this stuff is true. All the stuff that Paul Pelosi said is true. All this stuff the stuff that police said are true is true. All this stuff that prosecutors said is true. What an evil thing to do. You talk about evil. What a horrible thing to do to an elderly man who's in his 80s. What an outrage. And I didn't want to close the podcast without mentioning this trial was going on. And I'm going to go out and limb and say he is probably going to be convicted based on what I just read to you. Thanks for your time today. I try to get as much in every podcast as I can. Uh, crazy time to be in Washington, as we talked about, at the top. There's so much news going on that I promise to return tomorrow. See you then, with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.